All right, perfect. So um, I'm very happy to continue doing the British Society of Sport History, the BSSH podcast across the pond in a brave new world. And starting us off in our stay in place, everyone has a lot of free time and is very generous with that time. Conversation is Raja Rahim, who is a current, current uh, PhD student at the University of Florida, but she's also undertaking a research and teaching fellowship at Marlon Yarbo Fellowship at King and College. So I'm now going to introduce Raja and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and what she's studying for her dissertation. Hi, thank you. Thank you everyone who is tuned in. Um, I'm excited to be with you all today. Yes, I am a current PhD student at the University of Florida and taking on the Marilyn Yarborough Dissertation and Teaching Fellowship at Kenyon College starting uh, in the fall. Uh, my dissertation research looks at the history of Black college basketball. Um, in the 20th century. So I look at how African-Americans at historically black colleges from 1912 to 1972 refashioned the game of basketball as a site of solidarity and resistance to keep it short and sweet. That, that, that is far more professional than I could ever say about my own research. So I suppose the first question to ask, because I'm very ignorant of American sports, as you can probably guess, from my Irish brogue is, what is the current research like on African-American college basketball? Or is this kind of a first juncture into that field? Um, this would be the first attempt of a uh, comprehensive examination of black college basketball. Um, there have been previous works done on various aspects, um, whether it's looking at uh, the well-known coaches that came out of Black college basketball, like John B. McClendon or Clarence uh, Gaines of Winston-Salem uh, State University. Um, there has been uh, studies done that looked at Black women in Black college basketball as well. But there hasn't been a full study that seeks to explain um, Black college basketball and its, important, and its importance not only to uh, Black communities, Black colleges, but to Black culture and Black communities as a whole um, when we're thinking about the African-American experience. Most of the scholarship that is currently out on on race and sports either focuses on uh, the professional black athletes of that we consider the icons, um, particularly your Michael Jordans and your LeBron James, or they look at the um, influx of black college, uh, black athletes, excuse me, to predominantly white institutions starting in the 1960s. Um, so as far as a historical examin examination on the importance of black college basketball as an institution um, on the same level as the black church, um, black political and social organizations has not been done. So this is where I see um, my work coming in to fill in those gaps um, and to point to another part of African-American history that exists um, within sports and athletics at historically black colleges 
during the 20th century um, and definitely before and after segregation. And I want people to definitely understand uh, the uniqueness that went into um, organizing basketball during this time period, the autonomy that uh, Black college basketball gave to um, African-Americans and in particular African-American males um, during the 20th century. So I'm taking on a lot, um, but I want them to understand that it's more than a story about basketball and, uh, you know, the best scores or the best known players and coaches, but it's really talking about an institution that was built from the bottom up. Um, so I suppose I have two questions. The first is what brought you to this topic and then how big is the actual research. So how many African-American colleges um, are you taking on in your study? So I've been uh, technically working on um, my particular research on Black college basketball since 2012. Um, my current dissertation project is expanding my master's thesis entitled uh, The King of the Court, which focused on John B. McClendon and the 15 years he spent coaching at North Carolina Central University, which is a historically black college in Durham, North Carolina. John B. McClendon is also the only African-American and the last protege of Dr. James Naismith, who was the inventor of basketball. And so, I was introduced to this project from my master's advisor. He pretty much gave me John B. McClendon's name on a paper and told me to go do research. And I realized that I was attending, you know, I had received my master's and my bachelor's from North Carolina Central University. So as I was working on my master's, I was realizing that the person that I was studying was a coach here at the same institution that I'm getting my degree from, whose name is on the gym of this, uh, on our campus. And I had no idea um, that he had his own story. And so seeing that his legacy extended from uh, the University of Kansas, no one from what I was finding when I was doing my research has traced the legacy of black coaches um, under John B. McClendon in the history of black college uh, basketball and the history of black basketball in general from his lineage at UF, I mean, excuse me, at the University of Kansas in the same way that it was done from Frog, uh, Frog Island, uh, Allen, who was at the University of Kansas, was the first coach pretty much after Naismith there, um, all the way to the likes of the Larry Browns and the Dean Smiths of Chapel Hill. That legacy, the white uh, college coaches uh, legacy has been um, followed or in the lineage better is a better word for it actually has been followed but no one has followed the lineage of John B. McClendon, a black man. And so that's where my research started. And I started, um, so with my dissertation, I've expanded um, from John B. McClendon into North Carolina Central. And in order to 
narrow the scope, being that there's over 100 historically Black colleges still in existence today, I decided to focus on Black college basketball programs who currently belong to or belonged to the CIAA conference, which is the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association, which is the oldest um, and the largest uh, athletic conference dedicated to Black college sports. Um, and so within that uh, scope of institutions, I have currently done research at eight um, HBCU archives. And so in order to, of course, complete the dissertation, I had to say eight is going to be enough um, to actually visit and explore their archives. And all of the other materials, luckily, I've been able to find online, whether it's been their yearbooks or newspapers or previous journals that were published from these from different institutions within the CIAA. So it kind of gives me a great scope of 10 to 12 uh, HBCUs to consider while focusing um, more uh, narrowly on about four to five of those particular institutions. Brilliant. And I'm just wondering, in terms of the source material, you begin in the 1930s, is that right? Well, actually, I'm starting in the 19, um, 1912. 1912 oh, was 1912, sorry. Yeah, 1912 was the year that the CIAA um, conference was organized. And it was also um, the year that previous scholars have marked as the first uh, intercollegiate Black college game. Um, so I started in that year, although while I'm going through my research, I actually find that two institutions, uh, two Black colleges play prior to 1912. Um, so that is my starting date. And 1972 is my ending date, looking at the establishment of the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, was, um, which was a Division I uh, conference uh, established out of the CIAA. Um, for the purposes of um, allowing larger Black colleges to attain the D1 status um, and to uh, participate in D1 postseason uh, tournaments. So as you go across the decade then from kind of 1912, but maybe a little bit earlier to 1972, how does the source material change from those early decades versus say the 50s, 60s and 70s? Is it scraps of newspapers and scrapbooks and you know, odd ephemera earlier on or is there always like a lot to work with as you go? I would say I've been very lucky um, thus far in finding the necessary source materials um, and primary source materials needed to do the research. Um, the first is a five chapter dissertation um, as of now. Um, the first half of the dissertation, which looks at the first half of the 20th century, of course, largely uses newspapers um, 
I've used newspapers. I've been able to use uh, university yearbooks. Um, fortunately, there are some institutions who yearbooks or uh, university journals like uh, Howard University, for example, they have a university journal that starts and dates back to 1903, 1904. Um, Hampton University has a journal that dates back into the late 19th century to the early turn of the 20th century. So that has been very helpful in understanding the introduction of college sports, the introduction of basketball into uh, Black colleges, along with uh, national Black newspapers like the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, who throughout the 1920s and 30s started to pay attention to um, athletics within uh, Black institutions of higher education. As we move into um, the 1940s, 50s, I've been able to not only use newspapers in the yearbooks, um, in the campus uh, newspapers that the colleges, the college students produced during those times. I've been also able to incorporate oral histories. Um, a lot of the, some members of teams, um, whether they were a coach or players from the late 1940s onward have been, are still living. And so I was able to do some oral interviews with um, individuals who helped add to um, the post-1950s part of my dissertation to understand, you know, the impact of World War II on Black college basketball, to uh, understand these notions of civil rights integration and Black power, how they were articulated through Black college basketball as well. So I've been able to, you know, not only use the archival research that I found at Historically Black Colleges, um, but all interviews as well as newspapers, uh, national, local, as well as campus newspapers, campus yearbooks. So I have a, um, a lot of source material that I have been analyzing for about a year now. And it's kind of fun when you have too much uh, rather than too little. Yeah, so. it is. It is. Um, it's exciting because it's kind of like every time you do a search and you click on something, you can find a whole new uh, database of source materials. Um, so that's really been the kind of um, the complexity, I guess I would say that I've been working with, kind of telling myself to stop researching, stop collecting, you know, work on, work with what you have because you have a lot as of now and see what the story, um, see what the primary material allows you to tell now. Um, And that way then I'll know where to, um, what to search for to fill in those gaps. And again, showing my ignorance of American basketball in general, was basketball in the black colleges and African-American colleges always linked to civil rights, integration and equality, or is that something that progresses more 
along the 20th century. So is it more in the 1950s and 60s where we see it being linked more towards the civil rights movement? Uh, yeah, it depends on who wants to tell the story and how they're telling the story um, and what the meanings of civil rights and integration and black power means. Um, as we all know, those terms um, have been uh, complicated uh, very much throughout history. Um, civil rights just doesn't apply to African-American history, but it applies to women history, um, queer history, right? These uh, different notions of what it means to have civil rights or to be a part of something or to want to integrate. Um, so when I focus or use this idea of black college basketball as a site of solidarity and resistance it's before and after um segregation um in to answer your question how it works after segregation the idea of civil rights for black college basketball was articulated in these that what i call athletic emancipation which was this idea for all black team from all black college to have the right to play freely openly and publicly against white colleges and integrated competitions right um that was their political language about civil rights they wanted to have the freedom right um for their teams not to play quote unquote behind the veil of segregation um, to or have to play based on these rules of racism and white supremacy. Um, they wanted them to have a fair opportunity, but they weren't necessarily asking for what we what we have come to see the trend to be. And that is the transition of the top and best black basketball players into predominantly white institutions. So for black colleges, these notions of, of, of civil rights and integration didn't work the same um, as it may have done for other institutions. Whereas black college coaches lost their, the best, their black only access, right, to black players they then had to compete with white colleges but there wasn't a return um, in which white americans right white basketball players were willing to go to black colleges so we see how these ideas of civil rights and integration actually uh threatened the infrastructure of black college basketball during the 60s and 70s as you know predominantly white institutions start to desegregate their athletic program um, and so on one hand they're resisting this notion of integration because they understand that the ultimate impact that it's going to have on their programs um, and so they are using basketball to still fight for this solidarity, um, the importance of black, young black men coming to black schools, not just to play basketball, but for the educational and human resources that were offered at black colleges compared to predominantly white institutions.
And I'm wondering, actually, on the topic of, um, say, black athletes going to white universities, does that happen soon after Earl Lloyd goes to the NBA in 1950? Or is that something that comes along later? So I'm just wondering what impact the first kind of wave of black athletes into professional basketball may have had on black colleges around the 1950s. Right. So this, uh, the integration of, or I'll say, I'll use the word desegregation, the desegregation of the NBA and of predominantly white colleges happened around simultaneously in a sense. Um, we know that they, there were, players um a few white a few black players who played on black college uh, excuse me play, played on white college teams um in the 1950s right we have wilt chamberlain we know that he was coming up during this uh 1950s right the university of kansas he's there um to play basketball in the 1950s at the same time, we understand that Earl Lloyd, yes, uh, becomes the first black player to actually play um, in the NBA game. Um, but it's a slow transition towards full integration, right? Even though we start to see the numbers or we understand that desegregation is happening, the idea of integration or how we come to understand it tied to, you know, this 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education and within schools, how long it took for schools to fully integrate, right? And that doesn't come about into the 1970s. It's the same thing within the NBA and the and predominantly white colleges operating under the NCAA, right? And so when you look at just the history of African-Americans in the NBA, we see that there's one per team. You know, by the time Bill Russell comes into the NBA in the late 50s, you know, he's one of maybe 15, right? He's, there's not a lot of African-Americans in the NBA as we see today, right? <laughs> it wasn't like that in the early 1950s. We see the NBA finding ways to curtail the play of Black players, right? We see the NBA coming up with ways to say, hey, we don't like the game that was played in Black colleges. So if you want to play in the NBA, we need you to play like this, right? And so we see that same wave happening within the NCAA as well, where a lot of white college coaches did not like the style of game that African-Americans play, which I highlight as the fast, which is fast break basketball, right? This is this ingenu ingenuous style of play that McClendon, creates at North Carolina Central University. And this becomes the trademark of black college basketball, the ideas of the improv movements of passing and dribbling behind the back and between the legs and dunking, all of that comes out of, you know, fast break basketball, this notion. And it was one, a style of game that white colleges coaches did not like and so we don't actually see the walls of quote-unquote segregation falling in white colleges like until the night until like 1966 and understanding the texas western 
defeat of the University of Kentucky, in which, you know, Texas Western, a smaller, predominantly white institution, uses all, uh, um, all starting lineup of five black players uh, against the University of Kentucky all white team. And we see five black players defeat um, a white college team. And that was like the signaling to all coaches uh, of predominantly white institutions that, hey, if you want to win and you want to win a championship, it's time to introduce black players to your roster. Um, and so we see that happening, but it's slow. Um, and so today when we watch basketball, it's kind of hard for us to believe that once upon a time there weren't black players in the NBA or there weren't black players allowed um, in predominantly white institutions that we see come to dominate March Madness. But that was once upon a time our reality and that reality wasn't too long ago. And so coming from someone who studies kind of the late 1800s, early 1900s, something that always comes up over and over is that white sports are often described as say scientific and vigorous and you know with a lot of precision and skill so i'm just wondering in any coverage that may have existed of black basketball in say white media how were they describing that kind of faster paced style of play because it, it seems difficult to me not to be enamored with that style of play so i'm wondering how how they navigated that way of reporting on it yeah um so you see some of those same um some of the similar themes uh or notions that have been that white media has plagued about other aspects of african-american history um you see where they refer to it as unorthodox um as being unsophisticated um having no structure right um and so in many ways it kind of ties into like the history of black music and uh especially jazz and looking how the history of jazz and how it was denounced by you know the elite white elite black elite to a certain extent but mostly white elite for um, is improv, right? Not having structure. So you see a lot of um, those same kind of uh, phrases used to describe how African-Americans play the game um, to show, to make arguments that the reason that they play the game the way they do is because they don't have a true understanding of the game and its originality. Um, but that is the whole point of my argument in introducing people to um, John B. McClendon who studied under, you know, and learned from Dr. Naismith and how, you know, the game that, doc that Dr. Naismith invented in the 13 rules he created was not um, the game that has come about today. And it has taken um, a while for us to accept that this, the game that we're so accustomed to seeing today was actually a black game, a black style of play that emerged out of black communities, out of black culture, you know, out of black ideas of freedom, um, and those, those ideas of freedom also meant, you know, mobility. And mobility 
doesn't mean just the great migration and moving from the south to the north, but having that freedom of expression on the court, um, being able to express your manhood on the court through athletic dominance, right? Um, and so my research and my study is pushing back against, you know, these pseudoscientific and races. Um, notions about Black bodies, about Black athleticism, um, and this idea that sports is like a pathology in Black communities. Um, and so what most people did not initially understand about fast break was that the fast break game in itself was very sophisticated, that it would not have allowed for a slam dunk if everything wasn't in its proper order if players weren't in the right position at a at any given moment the only difference is the speed and so also what I find myself doing in my research and with writing the dissertation is having to explain the history of basketball itself before I can really introduce people to um, what is going on in black college basketball to understand that the game that we see today didn't start that way, right? It didn't include dribbling. You couldn't run, right, at first when a game was first invented in 1891. You could only pass and walk, right? Um, and there was no idea of, like, running or, you know, the jump shots or a three-point line or any of these notions that we enjoy so much today about basketball. That wasn't the game. Um, and so being able to trace the how – the changes in the history of basketball will help everyone understand the um, significance of black college basketball and how African-Americans at black colleges actually made and enforced those changes to the game. So just on the topic of kind of how racialized debates got about athletic black bodies, something that I know it's past your dissertation period, but even it reached me, in Ireland in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, his, uh, I can't remember his, first, his actual name, but Jimmy the Greek in the 1980s had some horrible comment about black basketball players were naturally better because slavery produced more athletic offspring. And I still remember people tried to play it off as th this kind of lighthearted thing, and they're trying to defend that. So I'm just wondering, when did we see those kind of highly racialized ideas that black bodies were more athletic or more skillful in basketball is that when black colleges started to play against white colleges or is that something that had always existed because it, it is one of those damaging discourses that i think surrounds even today yeah i mean even within the study of basketball you have to especially within the study of black college basketball and understanding you know uh basketball and how it works within African-American history and looking at these lingering notions from slavery, they existed all the way up until, you know, the invention of basketball, understanding that basketball was invented um, during the rise of Jim Crow segregation in America, where they're concerned about, you know, Black men's sexuality, right? Black men's ability or intellectual ability, right? They're, um, they're concerned about their physicality and their physiques. We see 
those notions um, that derive from slavery continue on throughout uh, Jim Crow. And so Black men who are playing basketball is fighting against those notions, right? We see that they're not just going to college to play basketball. They're going to college to get an education during this time period. This is before the NBA allowed Black players um, to be drafted. So we see an importance on re-articulating notions of Black um, manhood, right? Um, We see that it's not just about their physical ability, but their intellectual ability. Um, But in the early history of, in the debate about athletics and sports in Black colleges, African-American educators were concerned about those pseudoscientific thoughts about black um black uh intellectual abilities versus their uh physical abilities and their athletic abilities and some for some black college leaders it was a concern that if they did uh incorporate sports in their colleges that them that they themselves would be perpetuating those false notions. So they really walked a fine line between understanding um, what basketball and along with other sports would mean for black colleges and black and the students within those institutions. And so maybe building on that or leading off from that, what, what has been one of the more surprising things that you found in the course of your research, either in terms of when a, a certain college came to prominence or when kind of messages or ideas which seemed relatively modern maybe had a longer or more lingering past? Oh, let's see. Well, that's a good sign. There's been so many. Yeah, I've been finding, <laughs> so, I've been finding so much interesting uh, facts um, within my research. But I guess what I'm currently working on now, what I'm finding interesting because I'm working on the beginning um, chapters of the dissertation, it's beginning history of uh, the development of basketball in black colleges. So in marking it from, you know, the eight, 1891 when the game was invented to the early 1930s um, and looking at, you know, how black colleges actually established um, basketball programs. Um, And so one of the things that I'm finding that was of major concern, of course, was establishing and building a gymnasium, right, to actually have and host basketball. But what I'm finding so interesting is the how students, particularly students at Howard University, organize their own social movement to actually build a gym where they um, took it upon themselves, right, to ex- to build a gym, to force the administration of these institutions to be concerned not only about playing basketball, but the, uh, the overall health and well-being of the student population, right? The, being able to have a place for physical ex- exercise and to focus on ideas about physical health. And so students at Howard University in the ni- in 1909 and 1910 are organizing a volunteer 
student um, gymnasium movement in which they're going out um, into Washington, D.C., into parts of Maryland um, and the surrounding vicinities in those areas uh, to raise money for them building a gym. And they're pretty much willing to build a gym by themselves with their own hands. And I think, you know, that's kind of has been interesting. One, because it's like, oh, wow, they really were determined about having a gym and they were really, you know, willing to go and get the bricks themselves and lay them. Um, all they needed was people to help donate the money to purchase bricks. And so I'm seeing this story come about and it reminds me or it makes this connection to, you know, how we look and view stadiums and arenas today, right? How, you know, in certain areas, in many places and cities, how taxpayers and the city and team owners all come together for, um, are all responsible, right, for paying, right, for a stadium, for this, for a benefit, um, for a benefit that doesn't actually serve the whole community. And trying to make those connections and understanding how stadiums today are tied into these larger notions of capitalism. But just looking at that history from how, you know, stadiums and arenas went from one point being willing to be built by hands of ordinary students to, you know, just to have a place to play the game. It didn't have to be big or major and all, you know, with all of the fine amenities as we see in these stadiums today. And so it's really um, humbling, right, um, to see their dedication and their determination. But it's also a reminder about the importance and significance um, of, of sports and why people took pride in sports before, you know, the advent of like big business, uh, this big business in sports and, you know, really introducing capitalism in sports. So as right now, that's been one interesting thing that I've been um, sitting with and kind of rationalizing that, you know, when it came to organizing, students took a leap and they organized for a gym. And most people probably would think that's trivial, but for them, the gym became a space of where they could be unified, where Black people could gather, you know, um, became a space where, you know, they could politically develop, where they could um, economically develop as well. And so I lay out all of those pieces from, you know, this 1909-1910 movement just to build a gym, right? And I suppose the slightly mean or meaner question to ask would be in finishing out the project now, what's the, well, hopefully there's none, but what's the barrier to finishing now or what do you think will be the toughest thing to kind of unpack and explore? Uh, as of right now, the way it's looking, as the most, what I'm finding is really wanting to, what I mentioned earlier, to talk about the convergence of civil rights, integration, and Black power 
on black college basketball because I want to be fair, you know, in telling the story. Um, and to do that, you know, I have to one show how these notions of athletic emancipation on one hand kind of, you know, became the death knell, right? For black college basketball. Um, and to be careful with articulating these notions of desegregation and integration and civil rights and exactly how that meant for um, black college basketball. Cause then I have to explain, you know, the split that also that ultimately happens within the CIAA in which colleges are the colleges within the CIAA are having an internal debate about the direction and about their future amidst uh, civil rights and black power. And, you know, understanding how that came to be and then rationalizing that with someone who attended an HBCU who understands um, that the decisions made in 1972 didn't actually uh, didn't actually fully benefit or they didn't all of their hopes and dreams and desires of 1972 really never came into uh, fruition. And I can tell you why, but I have to do so without blaming uh people of 1972 for the decisions that they were making, right? Um, and that for me is the kind of tricky part because that's where I'm expanding, you know, my dissertation past the dates of my master thesis. So um, I really would have to sit with that and those notions. Um, and of course my interviews with the old interviews that I have done with individuals who were um, living through that time period kind of uh, is in conflict with some of the written materials that I've been able to find. So that part would be a balance um, because I want to tell that part of the story correctly because people who experience that are still living. Um, and I want to try to be as fair as possible, right, um, with that particular portion of the dissertation. No, absolutely. And I suppose uh, last question before I let you go, because um, I'm mindful of your time. Is there anything that I should have asked because I am want for not asking the right question? So is there any, anything that we didn't cover, anything maybe that you think is an important part of your dissertation that you haven't had a chance to speak about? Um, no, really, now that I think about it, I try to, you know, answer the questions as fully and probably long-winded <laughs> for some people um, as possible, you know, as possible, because I wanted to give people a full story, even though I know we are on a, we have a short amount of time to get all this information out there. But for the most part, um, I just want uh those who will read my dissertation and eventually it will be a monograph, right? Those who will read this story to see it not as a sole history of basketball, but it is a history about 
black men who made the best of what life had to offer them. And in doing so, they created a game that we have all come to appreciate. And um, I think that's kind of what I want people to be left with. Um, and that comes from one of the coaches, um, Coach uh, Robert Bond of Elizabeth City uh, State University, who I've been interviewing. And that is how he tells the story. You know, he's saying that most people will have no clue about the things that they experienced um, as Black men um, wanting to play basketball and to be coaches and players at historically Black colleges. But they did the best. Um, with what they had and they were successful in doing so. So I really just kind of want to leave people with that understanding that the game you see today and that you watch today and that you love so much was uh, reinvented in black colleges and then shared with not only the United States, but with the world. And you can literally trace, you know, just John B. McClendon, right, from his basketball teachings um, and introduction of the game within the United States to him introducing the game throughout Europe, Asia, um, and, you know, parts of uh Central America. And so that can be traced as well. And so that's another story for another day. But um, yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting to you, learning about your dissertation, uh, learning about your research and future plans. So what I'll say now is that there will be a bio to this podcast. So if people want to get in contact with you or see any of the wonderful things that they're doing, they can click on to that. But I will leave you uh, with the last word. I just want to say thank you again for this great conversation. Yes. Thank you for having me.